Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bernard. Welcome again. It's great to be here. Yes. Where are you now? I am in Hong Kong right now. You moved there? I moved here about two weeks ago and living in great neighborhood, Shenghuan, and just kind of getting used to the lifestyle over here after four years in Taipei. Yeah, in Shenghuan. So have you started learning Cantonese? Oh, God, you know, I, I watched a few YouTube videos and it's so, so different from Mandarin, like a totally different language. And I do intend to pick up some for, you know, food ordering and, and taxi drivers, but it, it's going to be, it's painful, you know, it's hard after four years and, you know, getting used to one second language, learning another second language. So it's on the list of things to do, but it's an increasingly long list. There is a way to do this. In fact, a lot of my friends in Singapore learned it to just by watching Hong Kong TV drama serials. Yeah, yeah, it's always, that always seems to be the answer. I don't know, maybe I'll have to brush up on my Canto pop. Yeah, I'll, I'll, have, to, I'll have to get back into whatever, whatever's cool in the Hong Kong pop culture scene here. Yeah, just as we talk about traditional and simplified Chinese the last time around, I also want to give a little bit of history lesson about Chinese and Cantonese. Okay. Do you know that Cantonese was actually almost became the official language for China? Yeah, you know what? I think I, I, think I heard that. And, and, and I, I, it also seems like every time I meet a person who is from a particular part of China where they speak a dialect, they always tell me that it was going to be their dialect, which was almost the official language of China. Though I have a sneaking suspicion that Cantonese might have been a front runner as opposed to Correct. Sichuanese. Correct. In, actually, Cantonese was the front runner, but what happened was they decided that they would take a language from the north, and Putonghua was, was that language. Ah, I see. Well, I guess they, they made it easier for foreigners like myself because that's five fewer tones I have to worry about. Well, you will have some fun in Hong Kong, right? I mean, KC Lao is all there, so you'll get a lot of good. Oh, yeah, no, I'm having, I'm having a great time here and, and, and meeting people very quickly, and I'm loving it, how you, I'm loving it out here. Okay, we are talking to Josh Horwitz from Quartz. Josh, I definitely want to get you on this show because you wrote a really freaking awesome article about Uber's biggest Asian competitors. Oh, thank you for thank you for reading and thank you for the kind words. Yes, I, and actually shared your stats across the Analyze Asia Twitter account almost for the last week, I think. And I think you give some very interesting data. Let's just break it down by Let's start it again to sort of give a, our audience a little bit of context. Tell me again what Uber does and also the different other taxi hailing cabs clones, apps clones, and Didi Kwaidi, Ola Cabs, and Grab Taxi, and where, where are they and where do they come from? Sure. So Uber is a app. It is an internet company, technology company that connects passengers that are potential passengers that are looking for a ride around the city with drivers that are in a car and are looking for people to give rides to. And when passengers get into a car and they agree to a ride, there is a fare, a meter that's dictated by Uber. And then once the ride is over, Uber will typically take a cut of that transaction. Uh, the driver will get the rest. These drivers are often not what we think of as taxi drivers. These vehicles are often not what we think of as 
taxi vehicles, they can in some cases in some cities be yellow, red taxis or old-fashioned taxis, but more often than not, they're maybe private chauffeured vehicles. They could be you know, people that sort of freelance and drive on one of these apps full-time or part-time for extra cash. And Uber have two services that the Uber Black and the Uber X, right? That's right. So in most of its markets, Uber has, or all of its markets, Uber has some variation of two services. One is called Uber Black, which tends to be licensed sort of professional chauffeur-esque drivers driving around Mercedes, BMWs, nice cars. And the price point tends to be at about 1.5 times the market price for a traditional municipal cab. Uh, then the other service, which is the much more controversial one, is called Uber X. And in different markets, it's called different things. In Europe, it's often called Uber Pop. In China, it's called the People's Uber. And typically, that involves uh, the, the, the drivers that qualify to drive in this service can often be ordinary people, just like you and me, driving their own cars, provided they meet the standards offered by Uber. And also, the Uber driver actually gets rated by the customer, right? If they don't get above four stars, they will be eliminated from the Uber database. Well, I think different cities have different standards for when drivers get eliminated or kicked off. But that's right. There's a, there's a built-in rating system. So if I get in an Uber vehicle and I, when the ride's over, I, I'm, I'm unhappy because the, the car smelled like cigarettes or the car was really dirty, I might give a one-star rating. Or if I was really rowdy in the car, I, was, I left trash in the car, or I was drunk and I vomited, then the driver might give me a one-star rating. And in theory, if ratings for passengers or drivers go low enough, that might be enough to boot us off of the app. Really? Uh, yes, for, for drivers, if it goes down a certain a certain level, they might receive a warning or they might get booted off the app. Customers, of course, you know, it, 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 in theory, this could happen in practice. I think it's highly unlikely that Uber would kick off or, or turn away another potential customer. But I suppose if there's a sort of a, a someone who's serially intoxicated in an Uber and that could pose could pose some obstacles. I was in Hong Kong last week and someone actually got by Uber to the weddings place by a Tesla. So if you're in Hong Kong you should try to look out for that Tesla cat. Wow, that's the, yeah. I know that they've done it in, in several cities. I didn't know that it was in Hong Kong. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Okay, we have Uber, and then we have these three other players. I think they each dominate each region. So there is Didi Kwaidi in China, yes. there's Ola Caps in India, and there's Grab Taxi in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So you want to give us a little bit of flavor about these three Uber clones and how they are dominant in their respective geographies? Sure. All three of these companies emerged slightly after Uber first emerged in the United States. I think all three of them came out sometime around 2011 and quickly, very, very rapidly spread throughout their region. I'd say what makes these three companies stand out in terms of the approach that they took for, that is a little different from Uber, is that is that uh, Didi and Ola, arguably, arguably not, Didi, Ola, and Grab Taxi, they all built their initial supply base off of taxis, off of what you and I think of as taxis, those clunky vehicles that we hail with our hands when we go out in the streets uh, with meters that are set by the government or perhaps set by the taxi agency that owns the fleet. And they expanded very, very rapidly. So Uber, comparatively from a global global perspective, is Uber is in far more cities in the United States than Lyft. But in China, in Southeast Asia, and in in India, these three competitors are in far more cities than Uber currently is in. I always wanted to clarify this, and I, I did this in China recently. I actually used Didi. Um, Didi is only on WeChat, right? 
No, that's that's not that's not correct. So okay, it, it yeah, is yeah. available on WeChat, but you can also download a, a standalone DD app. Which there's actually at various points in time, there's been several. There's been one that's called Quai D One, and then I think they re- and then they recently revamped that to call it a DD Trucing. You might have seen the news about this name change that applies to well, it, it doesn't. It, people just still kind of call it DD Quai D, and the company kind of still refers to themselves as DD Quai D, but. Uh, the company is technically called DD Trucing. The app is called DD Trucing. But uh, inside that app, depending on which city you're in, you can hail any one of DD's services. Uh, the original one, which happened to be DD Dacha or Kwadi Dacha, which is traditional municipal taxis. They also have a service called Zhuangcha, which is close to Uber Black in the sense that the cars tend to be much nicer. The price point tends to be higher than the, the, the typical government set meter rate for a cab. And then there's Kwai Cha, which tends to be closest to Uber X. The cars are not necessarily fancy cars. And the price points can vary. Sometimes they're below the market rate of a taxi, but depending on, on, on traffic and depending on DD's algorithms, they at times can go higher than the, the fixed meter rate of a municipal cab in that area. Okay, so I actually use DD through WeChat. And actually, the funny thing is that for N equals one data point, I use Uber in Shanghai when uh-huh. I was traveling in China last week. What about Ola Cabs then? Uh, Ola Cab, very similar. It, it launched maybe a little after Uber first appeared in the United States, but it was in India uh, at least a, a good year before uh, Uber ever entered there. And like DD Kwadi, well, in India is, we should probably preface this by saying India is a very unusual market when it comes to its supply of taxi or its supply of, we should say, vehicles that people might want on demand at any given. There's currently two types of vehicles that you and I might hail at any given moment. The vehicles that you and I might think of as taxis have white plates. The vehicles that you and I, but there's also another type of vehicle where that have yellow plates. And these licenses are referred to as commercial licenses. Typically, vehicles that have that commercial license but not a taxi license are associated with some sort of fleet. Maybe it's a large fleet. Maybe it's just sort of a small business type fleet. And it's not uncommon for people in India to have a personal relationship with these drivers or these fleets. You want to leave the office late at night, you'll call your guy. Or you've got a a guy or a bunch of guys that do your daily commute for you. And there's sort of a a pattern of routine. And these drivers might have a few guys that that they know and that they get their rides from. Uh, And they might own the car themselves or there might be some sort of relationship with, with some sort of fleet. Uh, a fleet company. And that means that, in essence, that the, the, there's sort of a, a two-tier of supply for vehicles in, in India. And what this has meant for, for Ola is that Ola, when it rolled out in India, it was offering rides both with taxis and with these yellow plate commercial vehicles. However, meters, from what I've been told from talking to people that have lived in India, meters in, in, in India are not strictly enforced. It's not uncommon to get in a taxi and you guys will say, and some people will say, turn off the meter. We're going to do it our way. I'll just give you, I don't know. You know X amount of rupees. Yeah, X amount of rupees to take me from here to there. So it's a very, very fragmented system in terms of the bureaucracy of the supply. And it's also very fragmented and informal in terms of the way that payments are often conducted. So so what's happened is that, and I think this is really apparent if you read India's domestic media coverage of this, is that Ola and Uber have been referred to as cab aggregators or taxi aggregators. Now, whether or not these vehicles can be classified as taxis is something that's up for debate, but for our purposes right now, it's irrelevant. The point is that Ola was was able to piggyback off of supply 
of vehicles that you and I think of as taxis and also vehicles that op occupy the sort of upper tier. Uh, so in any case, there's an abundance of vehicles to draw from. And then recently, think about, I don't have the dates in front of me, but I'd say about maybe six months ago, over six months ago, Ola acquired a, a competing transportation net network company called Taxi for Sure, which was only taxis. And they also had deep penetration in some of the smaller Indian cities. So they have a very mixed supply, and it's all kind of under the same Ola meter. How about Grab Taxi? I know I live in Southeast Asia. I can tell, I can say a little bit about how they operate, but I think I will leave you to tell me a little bit more from your perspective how it looks like to you. Okay, sure. So Grab Taxi, like Didi, they, they, they built their initial supply base off of existing taxis. How they charge is a little different from the other companies, or I'll just elaborate a little more. So they built their they built their supply base off of municipal taxis, meaning when I opened the Grab Taxi app for a while, the default option, the only option was to book one of those yellow cabs that's running around Bangkok or one of those red cabs that's running around Singapore. As for payments, Ola and Didi Kwaidi and Grab Taxi, they originally allowed cash payments. Uber for a long time never did. Now that's kind of changing. All three of those companies are, are offering payments through third-party payment systems or systems or, or in China's case, Alipay. Uh, and then Uber in India, they've gradually been rolling out cash payments and I think in some other places in Southeast Asia too. Monetization is another area where these firms kind of differ from one another. Grab Taxi monetizes in a way that's very unusual. There are many, many companies all over the world like Sidewheel, like Halo in the UK that like Grab Taxi piggyback off of existing supplies of municipal taxis. Typically, those companies monetize by charging, say, a $1 or a one euro booking fee on top of each ride. Grab Taxi does something a little different. What they use is this sort of top-up model that's kind of like a SIM card. And so They'll charge taxi drivers a certain amount of money for each ride that they take or maybe for every five rides that they get. So they make their money off of the drivers. And for DD Quadi, for their taxi services, they don't make any money and they never have made any money. But for their other tiers, uh, namely Quaicha, uh, which is similar to Uber X, Drancha, which is similar to Uber Black, they do take a cut, they take a commission. Ola, meanwhile, in India, takes a commission, period, much like it was just a set a set percentage, much like Uber has always done in almost all of its markets for almost all of its services. So they all have very different models. And one thing I do know at the early stage of Grab Taxi, their user acquisition model is very, very aggressive. They actually <laughs> send a team of two. They go to every coffee shop in Singapore, which is where usually taxi drivers aggregate. They sign them up and they give a lot of the customer acquisition costs is actually very, very quickly. They give them the phone, the these so-called the credit cards where they, they get they get off the booking fee. And basically they actually give them five bucks for every time they refer the customer to use the app itself. Yeah, that's and that that's very much the, those are tactics that are that are very similar to what Uber has used in the United States, and mm -hmm. Uber is using those same tactics in Asia as well. So there was a period where Uber was just giving out iPhones to drivers in the United States. They didn't have iPhones. I'm not sure if that's the case in Asia. It probably it varies city by city, which you know, which and the launchers decide you know what measures they're going to take to to spread this app among drivers, but. Mm -hmm. Uh, the strategies are, are, have largely been the same. Just find the drivers, gas stations, cafes, taxi drivers, bars, and just really, really aggressively push the app. And so that's a, that in some ways has made this model a bit of a commodity in the sense that the barrier entry is so low. All you need is an app that that isn't 
doesn't require you know, it, it requires good tech skills, mm. but it's not it's not the most difficult app to make in the world. And and then just get drivers, get passengers, get drivers, get passengers, and offer as many incentives and discounts as possible. Yeah, I see that Grab Taxi is actually now changing its acquisition instead of acquiring taxi drivers, which I think they already got it a significant market share. They are now going after customers, so they are now starting to go to shopping malls with queues, getting us intern to just give cards to them and get them to download the app and add that coupon immediately sign them up with like a $20 coupon. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting yeah, to see yeah. how, how customer acquisition both for the drivers and the riders can vary. Yeah. I remember in Taiwan when Uber, I'd say about three months into three months after Uber came into Taiwan, if you went to any startup event or a tech event, or if you went to maybe sort of high end office area, it was common to see coupons. And these coupons would say things in Chinese along the lines of take a ride in a Mercedes or like, get a free ride in a Mercedes. And of course, this was an ad for Uber and they were offering 20% discounts to uh, something along those lines to passengers. And that was kind of their way. The pitch was, you know, get a cool ride in a BMW. So it's, it's always interesting to see how these marketing strategies, these advertising strategies are the the get, the slogan might change market by market. But I think that in every city, in almost every country, I think that, you know, Uber and Didi, Ola, and Grab Taxi have all been incredibly aggressive in terms of uh, customer acquisition, driver acquisition, etc. And actually, interesting one thing is actually consistent. Uber always give out special concessions during tech conferences. Yeah, uh, I think in they, every tech event that we go to, usually Uber is a sponsor in some way or another. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've noticed that too. They've definitely, definitely been pretty aggressive as to uh, in terms of reaching out to those early adopter types. Okay, so in your article, one thing I liked about was the whole chronology of the inv- overlapping investments. I mean, you could see one common team comes up. There's only that few groups of investors getting involved. And let me just list down those few investors. Tiger Global, SoftBank, and Couture Management, and subsequently the CIC, China Investment Corporation. I know Tamasic is involved through Vertex Ventures. Ah. Yep. So you are having sovereign wealth yep. funds entering into this as well. Is this by design or is it, do, you, do you think that it's actually because they are all looking to invest in something that is as high growing as what is happening to Uber, which is invested by Benchmark and a couple of other big players in right. the US? Well, I don't, I don't think that there was a massive conspiracy where SoftBank and Tiger, Tiger Global and Kotu got into this smoke-filled room and said, we are going to invest in the Ubers of Asia. I think it was more that you know these are you know, Tiger and, and SoftBank and, and Kotu. They've always been very. They've always had feet in Asia and always always had uh, always been very very aggressive in, in investing in Asia. Their portfolio has always had a lot of Asian startups in it. And uh, I mean the same would go for GIC and Temasek, right? And so I think that ultimately the the crossover. You know, the, the, or this overlap, sure, it, it's due to maybe some overlapping philosophies or some shared philosophies among investment theses. But I think that really it's just a shared a shared thesis about what the future of a transportation company might look like in Asia. So uh, about a year and a half ago or two years ago, that thesis was probably these companies are run by local teams at their core, right at the very top. Ola is run by an Indian Didi Kwadi, or at the time it was just it was two companies, Didi and then Kwadi. They were created, run from locals from the top to the bottom. Another thesis I think was about the way that 
they grow the market. So all three of these companies, they piggybacked off of the existing supply of municipal taxis. Uber seldom, seldom, seldom spends any time working with municipal taxis. They did in Hong Kong for a little while. They did in New York City for a little while. But typically, they want nothing to do with municipal taxis. Now, the reason for this is because municipal taxis are incredibly hard to monetize off. There's basically only one way to monetize off of a taxi, and that's through some form of a booking fee. You either charge a $1 booking fee on the passenger, grab taxi, or, 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 the, or this, this startup will take $1, and then the rest goes to the driver. Or in the case of grab taxi, they charge the driver maybe a $1 acceptance fee or a 50 cents uh, acceptance fee. Now, Uber's model of a percentage-based commission is... is just superior. Uh, there's there's just no doubt about it because by owning the meter, Uber can can charge a, charge a percentage based commission rather than a fixed commission, and that means that when rides are longer, or then they can they can get a bigger cut. So instead of taking one dollar per ride, they might get five dollars per ride. So that, you know that they might get less for, for for smaller trips, but certainly the longer trips to the airport, it'll it'll all it'll all balance out. And one important thing that, that Uber has over against all these taxi clones and I, as an observer of these companies is that they have surge pricing. So in times of demand and supply, Uber's model is based on the economics of demand and supply. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can't really do that as long as, as long as the meter is being set by the city or the government or the, or the taxi dispatcher. Uh, there's less leverage for Uber to charge more or charge the maximum willingness to pay, which is precisely what they're doing in times of surge pricing. But the, that's the that is where the perfect market hypothesis failed, or what we call the efficient market hypothesis failed badly, because in times of crisis where the supply is really scarce, right? Like uh, maybe you have some artificial incidents that is caused, for example, maybe some accident, some train fell apart you know uber search pricing happened because of the context of supply goes down then everybody screams at them for being capitalist well you know i think actually i, I sense that consumers are moving beyond that and most people recognize that this is about supply and demand and uber has at times said that during things like national uh, natural disasters or, or states of emergency that they will eliminate surge pricing and i think that that you know th that should probably be one of the one of the uh, exceptions <laughs> Well, I mean, that should probably be one of the, you know, I think ultimately the government, you know, and we'll be talking about this soon, but, you know, mm. that might be one of the areas where governments, as they seek to regulate this new form of company transportation, that might be one area to consider. You came to the conclusion that those, all the biggest Asian competitors have raised about $7 billion. That's correct. And they can end up being merged into a super entity. Well, they could, um, but they also might not. And in the piece, I didn't really have the space to discuss about to discuss why not, or, or to go into a little more detail about what the mechanics of that might be. But there's the possibility, right? Uh, certainly, these investors would be very, very happy to see these companies merge, and then the and then uh, you know, see the value of those investments go of their investments go even higher. And I think that there's some case to be made for consolidation. Uh, but let's start with the reasons why consolidation is not going to be imminent or why, why it's not going to happen anytime soon. I think if you think about, I mean, you have to question what are the concrete and specific advantages of consolidation right now? There's been very, very few instances in, 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 in transportation network, in the transportation network industry so far of consolidation. Uber has been very, very, very outspoken about saying how they never intend to buy a competitor. They've never bought Lyft. They've never bought the side wheels or the halos of the world. 
they find it easier to just go into a market themselves. As you were describing, you know, it's not very expensive to, well, it is quite expensive to grow the market and with discounts and discounts and, and subsidies, but, but in their view, it's, it's a worthwhile investment rather than just buying buying a network outright. The one instance where we did see a merger, or the two instances where we did see a merger was Taxi for Sure and Taxi for Sure and Ola in India, and then DD Dacha and Kwadi Dacha in China. The reason for the DD Dacha, Kwadi Dacha investment, merger, excuse me, the reason for that merger was because they were burning so much money. Uh, they were burning so much money for subsidies. They were both trying to outprice one another. And then Uber was coming along. Uber really was getting a lot of uptake in certain cities, Hangzhou in particular, uh, Chengdu in particular. And at the time of the merger, Didi and Kwadi, they hadn't really invested much time in building out this sort of peer-to-peer -peer model, the UberX model. They were still very much focused on taxis. And at the time, they weren't charging anything for the taxi model. So they were literally not making any money or making very little money. It's possible that there were there were some promotional schemes here and there that they managed to make some money from. But there, there was no money made in the transaction. The mergers in the past have all been about minimizing money burn to take on another competitor, and that competitor has always mm. been. Do you uh, see that the Didi Kwaidi merger is a little bit like a proxy war between Alibaba and Tencent and then against Baidu, which is Uber, is kind of like the proxy war on that? Well, I don't know. It's, it's, it's possible. I mean, those, those three companies will compete with each other, and in particular, Alibaba and Tencent will compete with each other. And, and now, as you know, there's this so-called online-to-offline war between Alibaba and now Tencent. You know, Tencent was an investor in Dianping, and Alibaba an investor in Meituan, and now they've merged, and they're yeah. going to take Baidu's Nuomi. Uh, so there's a little bit of that. But, I mean, proxy wars are inevitable in China because these, th these three internet companies have their hands in so many different, in so many different industries and so many different pies that you're, 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 everyone's always in a proxy war in China's internet industry. Yeah, but don't you think that, you know, it seems to be Tencent Alibaba always end up joining together and then Baidu is the one that gets affected in the end? I don't know. I mean, other than those two examples, other than Dianping and Meituan and Didi and Kwaidia, I'm not sure I can think of any major examples of, of situations where it's clearly been the Tencent horse and the Alibaba horse and then they merge together. I mean, not be so familiar with what is happening inside China, but I guess it's just that some examples, you know, make you feel that they are getting out on Baidu. So one of the interesting things that seems to come out from this whole thing is that the Didi Kwaidi are beginning to invest in either the Uber clones in the other respective regions. I can't remember offhand, either Ola or Grab, and they, they have done that. And they also invested in Lyft in US. Why? Yep. Well, you know, it's, it's a good question. The investments have probably been very small. I mean, Didi Kwaidi's investment in Lyft is $100 million US dollars, and that's pennies for ride hailing. You know, and, and, and now these companies are getting one billion dollars per round. You know, they, if they raise more money, which they probably will, you know, one billion is soon soon enough not going to seem like all that much. So, hundred million dollars is really not all that much. Didi's investment in Grab was undisclosed. So, I'm tempted to say that there's an element of PR behind this. I think that increasingly, a lot of this a lot of this competition is really taking taking place on the on the public relations front. And I think that there's there's some fist shaking and there's some chest pounding and I think that this is one of those instances. And it's possible that in the event that there is a merger or in the end that these companies do start working together a little more closely, it's possible that Didi Kwadi might take the lead because it has made those investments. But for now, I'd, I'd hesitate to read too much into the significance of those investments. It's definitely interesting and it's definitely something worth following. But I don't think that we're going to see much concrete. I don't think we're going to see many concrete and specific examples of close collaboration uh, or overlap, uh, or meaningful example of, of overlap in, in, in at least the next year. Is this a gesture or trying to play a proxy war 
in the US without being there, right? I mean, really, I, I agree. You yeah. could do it just like a gesture and just say, look, Uber, you try coming to China, I can make life difficult for you in the US. I agree. I think I think it's just I think it's just a gesture. These things sometimes matter, and, and it's clearly a very high stakes war in between these companies. So you know, if a gesture costs a hundred million dollars, well, so be it. So that which comes to the Uber's reach versus the competition. So you have produced a very interesting graph, which I see in the North America, where Uber versus the largest local competitor. India, Southeast Asia, and China. And I looked at the China graph. It is like the largest local competitor is miles ahead against yes. Uber. And yep. I think India as well. But I don't think Southeast Asia is still quite a close, you know, less than a third or so. How, right. how do you rank in terms of their performance? And how do you actually coming to the conclusion on this performance itself? Well, well the, city, the, the, the city availability was pretty easy. We just kind of count the cities. Though these companies have disclosed some of, their, some of their trip data. Now, before you think too deeply about the trip data, I'd caution anyone who's interested in these companies to realize that Asian tech companies will often exaggerate their numbers. Chinese tech companies in particular will often exaggerate their numbers. This is a very high stakes battle. Uh, the media is paying attention to this all over the world. So I'm it wouldn't surprise me if all of these companies are inflating their numbers. Thus far, it does look like when you take completed rides or trip, uh, just completed rides for these companies, in most cases, the local competitor appears to be beating Uber. So in, the, in China, Didi Kwadi, uh, last time I checked, was getting a total of 7 million daily completed rides. Three million of those were taxi rides, meaning that Didi Quadi makes no money. They're off of municipal cabs. Three million of those were private car rides through Zhuangzi, the high-end version, or Kuaicha, the lower-end, mid-tier version. And then there's a remaining one million through Didi's car carpooling service, where you've got multiple people on a single route. They've got a bus service. Uber China is meanwhile at one million, right? So basically, about one third of the ride volume that Didi Quadi is doing in private cars. If you look at Uber and Ola, it's also about one third. The only figure that, that Ula, was in, Ula said that during 750,000 rides a day, including auto rickshaws, it's not clear how many of those rickshaws are on the road, but Uber is doing 280,000 daily completed rides through its vehicles. So again, about one third. Grab Taxi won't release a daily completed ride volume, uh, or at least it's updated daily completed ride volume. So it's hard to get an estimate on that. But anecdotal evidence suggests that it's probably about the same. They're probably doing they're probably doing slightly more rides than Uber in or across Southeast Asia. This would seem to indicate that the fact that these local competitors are are likely ahead of Uber could mean that actually that that early start in that larger city footprint has in fact contributed to their bottom line. Though again, I, I really hesitate to draw any conclusions because I do think it's so early. I do think that there's a lot more money that's going to be spent on incentives and promotions. And I don't think it's clear that these companies are winners. I think that the it's, it's quite likely that these local companies are winning. But uh, but I do think that this, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not willing to write off Uber in these countries just yet. So you think that it's still a market up for grabs situation? Let's use social networks for example you started off facebook in the u.s and you have cyworm mixi and ren ren and then subsequently you know facebook came and eat up japan and eat up korea but can't enter china and right. Southeast Asia was totally a facebook country so yeah that, so the that, market can be still open in in that view right well, well that's that's a good point i think that uber a lot of anecdotal evidence, even if you just kind of keep your eye on, on Twitter, I do see a lot more complaints about 
Grab Taxi and, and their 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 app versus Uber. And uh, I've heard other people from China tell me that they prefer Uber's app from a user experience perspective. And that all, all of those things matter to a certain extent. I agree with you because shockingly, I actually have the same experience. I told you I took Uber in Shanghai and Didi in Hangzhou, right? Yep. The experience in Uber was definitely better. Right. And, and so that that sort of stuff all matter. And and so that's why I'm, I'm not willing to write off Uber just yet, despite the fact that the numbers indicate that it's trailing behind. And again, if it was able to come up from out of nowhere in the past, I don't see why it couldn't get that much bigger. Then again, you know, the, the, we're, we're talking about something as simple as making an app better. So, and, and Didi Kwadi certainly has tons and tons of talented engineers. So it's possible that they might start directing their energies towards improving that side of, uh, you know, improving their app and, uh, and, and improving the user experience side of it. And well, uh, whereas Grab Taxi lost its CTO, and also the, they are still in the midst of trying to beef up their engineering team. Right, right. So you know these, these you know who knows what's going on behind the scenes at these companies. Uh, you know people make different choices to allocate resources in, in, in certain ways for certain reasons, and you know arguably you could say well having the prettiest app, has, you know they haven't had to have the prettiest app to be the number one in the country. So you know. There's not that doesn't well, shouldn't make it a, pri- a bigger priority now than it was before. I do think that there's still time for us to see what happens here. I think that this is going to be uh, be a long competition. I- I'd hesitate to say that the local players won because they're the local guys that were there first. They've got the local knowledge. I'd also hes- hesitate to say that that Uber is gonna Uber is gonna clobber them. I, I think we need to <laughs> we need to wait. No, I think that there's a lot of money raised and there's going to be a lot of dog fight going on across the regions and it's fun to watch. However, in this fight, it's a little bit different because there is the challenge of government regulation. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I are observing what is going on in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. I hear that um, maybe some of it, maybe first of all, I, I'll tell you what is happening in Singapore. Okay. The new Minister of Transport is now relooking into these sharing economy kind of apps and they wanted to have a level playing ground against the taxis. Actually, the reason came about because one of the, I think the third largest cab companies has recently gone to the level of 38% underutilized cabs. Wow. That is a big P&L blow for yeah. a company like that. And that's actually caused by ride sharing because a lot of these taxi drivers have decided that, hey, you know what? I could rent a $60 car and be an UberX driver and I'm not subjected under normal taxi laws. That's the name of the game. Correct. And so what happens is that the taxi companies are now revolting and say, no, this is unfair. So that's what's happening in Singapore. The draft reg- regulations have not come because I think in Singapore's way is we will talk to everybody, every stakeholder, and then we'll come to a set of fair and probably pragmatic laws to mm-hmm. solve the problem. But I know China has already started drafting regulations, but maybe you can tell me a little bit more on that. Sure. Uh, so China's situation is very interesting. This is an issue that's that's really become a front page news in China. Every day, if, every day there's news about Didi, uh, and often Didi versus Uber. It's something that that people have. A lot of people have that level of awareness that that you know, United States citizens have of of Uber and what their struggles are in their cities. What happened was over the past year, there was a lot of anticipation about what was going to happen from. A legal and regulatory perspective at the at the state level, for the same reasons that everyone in a lot of other countries are really curious as to what their local governments might do to regulate this new type of business, the ministry, the minister of transportation at the state level in China a few months ago went on the record at a, at a public event saying that he 
never thinks that he he used the, the phrase never. These uh, private cars, zhuanchas, uh, they're called in China, or pinchas, they're sometimes called, will never be legal in China. At the same time, Uber and Didi uh, have received so much media attention in the months since then that that there was some expectation that there might be a policy that's actually relatively liberal, relatively welcoming. So let me just tell you what the actual regulation, the, the proposed mm. regulation is. So uh, to start it from scratch. Mm. Uh, so last week, China's state ministry of transportation released a draft set of proposals that would dictate how to regulate Uber and DD and in China. I'd say these regulations were pretty conservative on the whole. There's definitely been more neat, more, more uh, aggressive knee-jerk reactions from local local transport bureaus both in China and, and elsewhere in the world before, but these proposed draft regulations were, were conservative. One of the ways they're conservative is in semantics and language. Now, this sounds like a small issue, but it's actually not. So one core struggle for Uber is to explain to governments and also consumers that it's not a taxi. It's a tra- It's not a taxi company. It's a transportation network company. And you've seen a lot of legislation in the United States come up where Uber and Lyft are described as TNCs, transportation network companies. And using that sort of terminology and definition kind of implicitly shows that the government recognizes this is a new type of company. Now, this draft proposal in China referred to, it, it didn't specifically name Didi or Uber at any point, but it referred, it referred to a type of business called online pre-booked taxi. So using the word taxi, again, even though it's, it's, it's a matter of semantics and a matter of language, it kind of sets the tone for the implication, or it kind of sets the tone for where, where the, po- the proposed policies stand. Under these policies, a few things would happen. First of all, companies that want to, want to operate as so-called online pre-booked cab companies, they would need to apply for a license to do so with their local transport bureaus, either at the city level or above the city level. Drivers would also have to obtain a specific license. And what goes on in that process to obtain that license is also going to vary city by city. But that's going to be overseen by the same organization that oversees taxi licensing. So it's quite likely it's a little vague. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of vagaries in this in this. Proposal, so but. it's kind of like in the US, the state gets to make the laws as well, or to put its own variation to the actual law from the federal government. Is that how I, I, I understand it? Well, that's yes, that's true. And that's, that's actually the good news. The good news is that, is that there's enough loopholes and there's enough vagaries in this law and there's enough trickle down to the local, municip- to the local municipalities that it's possible that, you know, that, that having this sort of all-encompassing top-down policy could be restrictive. I think that most of these companies would prefer that this be dealt with at the provincial level or in the case of the United States, the state level at the local level rather than the national level. But there's a few there's a few restrictions that would really kind of uh, place some pressure on Uber and Didi in China. So only vehicles that have seven seats or less can qualify to join this type of company. So that could potentially put a blow on the bus service that Didi wants to launch. There was also a, a few lines that said, we're not going to let these companies engage in anti-competitive behavior or cash burning. Now in China, there was a vicious cash burning war between, Uber, between Didi and Quaidi earlier this year and last year. Now Uber is spending aggressively to make its prices lower and incentives higher in China. That's the sort of policy that could read that if enforced would place a lot of pressure on these companies. So, of course, how you would actually enforce it is, is another question in and of itself. Mm. Also, local authorities can approve the number of uh, or can dictate the number of cars that these transportation network companies can have in their system and they can dictate the number of drivers, right? 
meaning that they might be able to say we're going to have a cap of 5,000 DD vehicles in Suzhou or we're going to have a cap of 10,000 new DD vehicles in Hangzhou. That's something that I think these, these companies don't don't want, of course. Uh, you can think of what happened back in New York City where de Blasio threatened to put a cap on, on Uber vehicles and then consumers reacted and, and there was a lot of backlash. Um, there's also some issues, some regulations with the actual cars. Cars must be registered as commercial vehicles and that means that after eight years they can no longer still be in use for commercial purposes. Uh, so that's a little controversial. And then also it, because it, it, it makes it less easy for someone to become onboarded as a driver. They might have to take a test, they might have to fill extra paper, they have to go through the government infrastructure and the government bureaucracy to receive official approval to become a driver. And then there's additional additional checks placed on their vehicle type and, and additional restrictions there. It's a little less flexible. So I'd say that there's good news and bad news here. The good news is simply that this proposal exists. There's plenty of countries that haven't addressed this from the from the state level, or there's plenty of companies that have taken an even more aggressive stance than China, France. It, it's somewhat ironic that those are those are two countries that have a much more sophisticated legal system than in China. Yet what we're seeing is like, you know, they're they're, they're still calling them illegal taxi companies, uh, and they're they're at the highest levels of the judiciary system there and they're still being called illegal. Whereas at least with this draft proposal, I think that there's some admission that this is a new type of business. And despite the fact that I'd say this draft, draft proposal is very conservative, in some ways it's, it's, it's a more progressive stance than what we're seeing in Germany and France. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that this draft proposal came out uh, around the same time that Shanghai basically said, we're going to recognize DD as a as a transportation network company and we're going to give them autonomy in how they operate and as long as they meet certain basic standards in terms of background checks and insurance you know we'll let them run their businesses as they please now the reason why that's interesting is uh, the, the timing is really why that's interesting i think that in chinese politics and chinese policy when when incidents like that are are, are timed it's kind of a signal so the chinese government or in particular the ministry of transport in this in this case they they have to appease two different groups one is a, a, a taxi industry and a taxi bureaucracy that has been acting the way it's been acting for decades. And then we're talking about the cool new internet group that's supposed to drive the economy and that's supposed to be a, a, an international symbol for China's growth and innovation. So the, the, and, and, and both of those, you know, the, both of those groups have, have political significance. Um, you know, taxi, the, the, the taxi industry is tied to the entrenched bureaucracy and state-owned enterprises, and these internet companies are, of course, you know, represent a new mm. type of business that China wants to promote. <laughs> so uh, I think that there is an element of theater going on here. I think that... So, uh, so you're there telling me that other than being a proxy war between BAT, it's also a proxy war within factions within the government. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's not it's not unusual to see proxy wars or factionalism in the Chinese government at all. Uh, you know, I think that people often have this misconception that the Chinese government is this monolithic entity and everything is top down and streamlined. That's not the case at all. Uh, and I think that that's why that's why, if anything, transportation network companies are, are are likely going to thrive in China from a legal and regulatory perspective. I think they'll they'll linger in this gray area for a long time, but I don't think that we'll see the 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 pressure that. The, the, the high stakes pressure from specific institutions that we saw in Korea and that we're seeing in uh, Germany and France. I guess the whole legal framework from different countries and governments are going to be as complicated as these four companies will get into war with each other in different geographies. 
and this is what you're going to see in the next one year or so. I think in the next in the next year we're going to see more competition from these companies. I think we're just going to continue to see more funding. And the real question will be what happens when the subsidies go? What happens when, for whatever reason, one of these companies decides to cut back their subsidies? Do they lose their drivers? And if they lose their drivers, do they lose their passengers? If they lose their passengers, do they lose their revenue? If they lose their revenue, does the does the house of cards come falling down? Or is it going to look a little different? Perhaps we'll see the the really really successful cities subsidize the less successful cities. Uh, I think you I think you forgot one big variable that might come in self-driving cars yeah i think we're i think we're a bit I mean, that that's the other wild card right if self-driving cars works then the drivers are irrelevant because these caps these cap hailing apps can become a maximum efficient transportation network yep you're absolutely right and i think that that's certainly what all of these companies want in the long term and that's why uber is is researching self-driving cars and they basically stole carnegie mellon's robotics team to to help them build this out instead of relying on their own investor called google who also have self-driving cars technology uh well if, if, if you read those articles that came out a few months ago from bloomberg and wall street journal it's possible the relations might have soured but in any case i mean they, they've got a dog in this fight google has a dog in this fight apple and tesla will also also likely have a dog in this fight but i think that i think that that's a long that's a long-term fight you know i i don't know the answer to when we'll start seeing self-driving cars on the road in mass there are people that say it's going to happen a lot sooner than we think uh but right now most of the cars that we're seeing on the road the few cars that we are seeing on the road are semi-autonomous they still require a human in the driver's seat so I don't think we're going to see, you know, that that's certainly going to be an interesting, interesting thing to watch for. But I'd say that that's more of a, that, that's definitely a, a, a much longer term issue. Hmm. I think this conversation is fun. It's funny that actually we have actually prepared two other topics, but I think it's a, a little bit too long. So I think we, I can definitely get you back maybe a couple of months from now to actually continue the war between these four companies or maybe we can discuss the other two topics that we originally wanted to talk about, right? Yeah, I, th- I think this one's more interesting than the other two topics, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this episode will be, we will get all the American audience and all the Chinese audience and all the Indian audience and the Southeast Asian audience to actually work yeah. out who's feel- more we are fighting on. Help my audience, Josh, how do they find you? Feel free to follow me on Twitter. It's at HorwitzJosh, H-O-R-W-I-T-Z, J-O-S-H. You can read my articles and all the articles of my talented colleagues at qz.com. Facebook is cool too. And uh, yeah, I hope to hear from all of you. I'm a huge fan of this podcast, Bernard, and it, it's so much fun talking with you. And uh, uh, I've learned a lot about Asia from, from hearing you and your discussions with uh, you know, some, some of the most talented minds in, in this region. Okay, thank you so much. And you can find me at CW of at bernardleong.com or subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Acast, and SoundCloud. We can be found at, at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And of course, do leave us a ratings and do drop us a note to tell us what would you like to have on the show. So uh, once again, Josh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Bernard.